As you make plans this season, consider convenient COVID-19 testing from Quest. Get the same test hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's a great fit for your busy life. With over 20 million COVID-19 tests processed, you can count on Quest. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. That's questcovid19.com. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Coming to you from the shores of Florida's beautiful Treasure Coast and bringing you the news behind the news, the story behind the story. Here to convince you the reality is usually scoffed at and conventional wisdom is often just an illusion. We're streaming live on iHeartRadio and available on demand on iTunes, TuneIn, Spreaker, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast directories. And you can follow me on Twitter at right now, Jim Dawes. Shoot me an email. The address is rightnowjimdaws at gmail.com. Or call the vent line and raise hell at 772-245-0750. That's 772-245-0750. Well, we are now uh, in summer. Uh, Memorial Day is the start of summer. And over the weekend, of course, uh, we saw that Americans are starting to uh, to shake loose of this coronavirus doldrums, uh, this uh, this hectoring and, and panic that's been sowed by the media. They've seen that uh, again and again, the so-called experts, the scientists that we were um, shamed into paying attention to have been wrong, and that uh, this, uh, this shutdown of the economy was wrong-headed from the start. It should have been, uh, you know, we knew who the vulnerable populations are. Those, those people should have been protected. And yet we have inflicted uh, trillions and trillions of dollars, tens of millions of lost jobs, millions of of lost businesses. And then over the weekend, uh, you know, you had these images from red and blue states of people going out uh, on the beaches and boardwalks and swimming pools and parks and uh, and going about their business. And it has absolutely driven the uh, the left wing media to uh, panic. They want everyone to remain shut down by God. And it's hard to arrive at any other conclusion that the reason they want this is they see this as their, their big chance to keep this economy locked down and defeat Donald Trump. And uh, it's really making them angry that people are not obeying their, uh, their left-wing masters. Over there at MSNBC, Joy Reid who, you know, I, I don't know uh, if you put together a ranking of the stupid hosts on MSNBC where Joy would rank, but she would certainly be up there near the top. Uh, here's what she had to say. Weekend videos of Memorial Day parties at Missouri's Lake of the Ozarks went viral as swarms of party goers who were not wearing masks and were certainly closer than six feet from each other packed into overcrowded pools despite the ongoing pandemic. Let's face it, the weirdness of... Being that bunched up in what looks like a kind of human stew. A human stew, she says. There's a stew going on between her ears. At CNN, uh, a Missouri sheriff from the Lake of the Ozarks region uh, came on to explain 
to Don Lamont uh, that his power is not unlimited and he can't enforce laws that don't exist? Social distancing is not a crime. Uh, I, I can't enforce something that's, that's not a law. So you cannot, you, you can't give a warning or a citation because other other police departments uh, and law enforcement agencies around the country seem to feel differently, and they are enforcing rules of social distancing and handing out citations. Then what is then what is the point of having this if it's not if it's not enforceable, Sheriff? I can't speak for other states. I don't enforce their laws. The only thing I enforce is the Missouri statute, county ordinances. Now, the county did have an ordinance. They did establish on this. A few weeks later, they withdrew the ordinance. They took it back off the books. Uh, I, I would, I agree with you. There, there needs to have been something done, but I have no authority to go in and shut down anybody. You know, uh, most of these these executive orders that are coming out from these governors locking down their states are, are not laws. They're not legal. They're, the sheriffs are under no obligation to enforce them. In some states, you know, the, the governor does have the authority to uh, to make these emergency orders, and they do carry the force of law. But that's not the case in Michigan, uh, one of the worst states, or or in California, for that matter. Uh, there is no law in the book that gives the, the governor the ability to shut down people's business. And every time it's been challenged in court, it has fallen. But, uh, you know, the, there's a dichotomy developing against uh, conservatives, uh, mostly in red states and uh, in uh, leftists, uh, mostly in blue states, about uh, keeping this economy shut down and keeping people, you know, uh, in their homes. And when they wander out there, it, it, it's demanded that they wear masks over there. Once again, at MSNBC, you, uh, they've got their own Gupta now. This guy's Vin Gupta. CNN, of course, has... Sanjay Gupta, Fox News, I guess, is uh, going to have to go out and get their own Gupta. But Ven Gupta, I don't know if he's related. I think Gupta is a very a popular Indian name. He's uh, he's insisting, and he's a medical doctor, although he's sort of morphed into a, a political commentator. Uh, but here he is demanding that you wear a mask. We should make masks mandatory in public. Just like we ban indoor smoking because, you know what, nobody should – you shouldn't have to breathe somebody else's secondhand smoke. I shouldn't have to breathe exhaled COVID-19 in somebody's breath. Nobody should. Well, if you shouldn't have to breathe uh, COVID-19 in somebody's breath, why don't you wear a mask? If if you believe masks work and, you know, the, the jury's still out on that, they told us for the first month of this uh, – epidemic pandemic uh that uh you know masks uh, were counterproductive and that they in fact could do harm and then uh, after you know the obvious uh fallacies in that argument uh, gave way then they came out and they demanded that everybody wear them but uh you know the truth of the matter is if you believe you want to wear a mask please be my guest uh but if you've got a mask on, why are you getting mad that somebody else is not wearing a mask? And of course, like I said, what, what this is all about is keeping the economy locked down because they're scared to death. They've got this, this old Joe Biden who, who can't string together a coherent sentence. And they're just determined that, uh, you know, the way that they're going to drag this old guy across the line is by going into the election with a bad economy 
The problem is you've got a lot of pent up demand and, uh, the stock market that's usually a pretty good indicator of where an economy is going believes. And, uh, and the president is uh, saying that, uh, once we reopen the economy, it's going to take off like a rocket. Here's Larry Kudlow. The third quarter could be the fastest growing quarter in U.S. history. The whole second half is going to be very strong as we reopen the economy and as Americans come back to recovery. This is a transition to recovery. And as the president said, it's a transition to greatness. It's a transition to greatness. I think he ought to uh, uh, tweak that that, uh, tagline a little bit and call it a return to greatness. Because before this pandemic hit and the president allowed himself to be bullied into issuing these guidelines calling for businesses to close. Uh, we had the greatest economy in my lifetime. You know, I, I don't know what it was like uh, back in the fifties and, and the, the roaring twenties, but uh, certainly as measured as a percentage of employment, it's the best economy we've had in a long time. And we finally, after 40 years of these disastrous trade deals had rising wages and it's going to, you know, it's going to be a tough slog to get that back. And doing it in one or two quarters is going to be very difficult. Uh, no matter how uh, many jobs are added or how quickly businesses reopen, the Democrats are going to, you know, continue to insist that things are terrible, that they weren't that good before the coronavirus. And it's all Trump's fault. It's Trump's fault that he paid attention to their demands to close the economy. But uh, if if people are getting back to work and the president frames this as a, a return to the pre-coronavirus Wuhan virus economy and, uh, and paints old Joe into a corner defending uh, the recovery that uh, Joe and Obama were able to put together after the financial crisis in 2008, I think a lot of people are going to uh, step out there and vote uh, their pocketbooks. And it's not going to help uh, that the Democrats have Biden out there saying things like this. I'm prepared to say that I have a record of over 40 years and that I'm going to beat Joe Biden. <laughs> oh, man. Well, he does have a record of over 40 years. He's pretty much. Uh, disowned all of his his previous policy positions as he tries to get in line uh, with the Bernie uh, voters that uh, that he thinks he needs to get up off the couch. But uh, you know, he keeps saying things like, uh, "And that I'm going to beat Joe I'm Biden." I'm going to beat Joe Biden. I guess you know when you think about it, he's right. I'm sure he didn't mean to say that, but he is going to beat Joe Biden. He's going to beat himself by continuing to say things like that. I'm going to beat Joe Biden. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, uh, just prior to the weekend, uh, he went on uh, Charlemagne, the demagogues uh, morning show and uh, and said, you know, this. I have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump. And you ain't black. Uh, <laughs> so his big, you know, uh, saving grace, he believes, is that he's going to have an overwhelming black vote. They amount to about thirteen percent of the thirteen uh, percent of the population, but they're um, 
uh, they're they're uh, concentrated in some really important uh, swing states like North Carolina and uh, well, I don't know if you still consider Virginia a swing state. But uh, the president has been making inroads with black people as he has uh, he has driven down the unemployment rate and uh, allowed them to uh, you know excel in this economy. And now you got Joe Biden telling people if they don't vote for him, they're not black. And that didn't go over well at all. Even Pierre Thomas, who usually avoids these uh, racial issues, I think he's at uh, ABC. He uh, he went on with. Uh, with George Stephanopoulos and had this to say. A note to older white male candidates. Do not tell black people what is black enough or who is black enough. It's just not going to fly. Now, I'm not sure how it's going to play. Uh, some of the younger African-American voters, uh, they don't like this notion of how Biden speaks about uh, black people. Sometimes they be, uh, believe in some cases Democrats take black votes for granted. But turnout is key, so okay. it could matter. Well, blacks are responsible for Democrats taking them for granted. Why wouldn't you take them for granted when they continue to turn out uh, for you at uh, 90% plus, despite the fact that uh, the Democrats, including Barack Obama, uh, did very little to improve the economic condition of black people. Of course, you know, he massages their racial grievance and tries to to excite uh, their their victimhood as much as possible. But when it's actually doing something like driving down the unemployment rate and protecting their jobs by reforming trade deals and securing the border, uh, the Democrats have been uh, worthless and, and really, you know, of course they can take them for granted. The Democrats can take blacks for granted because no matter what they do, the blacks continue to turn out for Democrats. And I think there's a real good chance with uh, with Trump uh, that he's going to, you know, at least get 20 percent of the black vote. You know, maybe I'm being uh, rose colored glasses there, but uh, uh, Trump studiously avoids, uh, you know, uh, talking about uninspiring messages for any any group of Americans. And uh, what he has done is actually on the positive uh, side of the ledger he's uh you know he's he's actually getting things done that benefit all americans including blacks and you meet you Cinder, who is uh you know uh, one of the uh, black grievance uh cultivators in the mainstream media she's for uh public broadcasting uh she thinks well you know joe apologized so it's okay i will say there was a collective gas at the idea that Joe Biden had the hubris to say that African-Americans aren't black enough and that he would be a person as a white man to tell African-Americans how to be African-American. That was definitely seen as not okay. Um, and his apology was needed based on the reporting that I have. But that was, that apology was given swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier. I apologize. That is not okay, Joe Biden. But he apologized. He apologized. Yeah, he he apologized quickly. He he knew he had messed up. He's going to mess up a whole lot more. But um, you know, then at some point after uh, after the initial outrage, uh, the the Democrats realized that uh, yeah, he's a racist, but he's our racist, and we we need him to beat the bad orange man 
And so they uh, they sort of went on an apology tour on the cable networks for Joe Biden. This is a distraction. Vice President Biden spoke uh, to his comments on The Breakfast Club. He apologized. He clarified. He said he shouldn't have been so cavalier. But we need to move on and talk about the issue. We need to move on. He apologized Mm -hmm. for it. Uh, But I really think the gall and the nerve of President Trump. I believe that Joe Biden was incorrect in uh, the statement, you ain't black. Uh, but I also believe that his apology was sufficient. That he apologized. Swiftly. He was saying, I'm sorry, I was being too cavalier. I apologize. To his credit, Joe Biden recognized within minutes that he had gotten carried away. I think uh, he has apologized and he should have uh, apologized. It was like, you know, one of those jokes that just falls flat. It's almost the end of the interview and you need to understand the context. Joe Biden saying what Joe Biden has been saying on matters of race for a long time. Uh, remember when he said, I, I have more blacks than you. He thinks that he owns the black vote, does, you know, because he goes out and, and says things every now and then. He doesn't actually do things, but he says things. And Joe Biden was just uh, speaking his truth, as they like to say, when he said. I have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. <laughs> Oh, James Carvel, who, uh, he's not black either, but he said, oh, never mind all this. I mean, Biden made an error. He apologized for it and just move on. Just move on. We we can obsess on this, but this is, in in the scheme of things, this is not going to mount to diddly squat. This ain't going to mount to diddly squat. Move on. Move on. Oh, James Carville. I, I heard uh, some uh, commentator on Twitter saying uh, it wouldn't matter if Joe Biden boiled and ate babies. I'm still going to vote for him. And I think that's really the position of the Democrats. They are they're going to vote for Joe Biden no matter what. And uh, I'm not sure who this is. One of the talkers over uh, on on uh, CNN. Everybody was kind of clutching their pearls already, knowing that Joe Biden was going to do these things. Let me let's be honest. We know Joe Biden going to say a lot more stupid things during the course of this uh, campaign. And so we kind of, you know, built that into the to the calculations. Joe Biden going to say stupid things. And we already built that into the calculation. So uh, you just go on. Keep on saying stupid things, Joe Biden. Here's Carville again saying that uh, there's nothing pretty much that Joe Biden could do to uh, to lose his support. He picked Sarah Palin. I will say it's the greatest choice in the history of vice presidential picks to anybody that he picks. I'm going to be fine with. We just got to win, baby. I mean, win. I, I trust Joe Biden 100 percent that he'll make a, a wise choice and somebody we can all feel good about. But if you pitch Sarah Palin, I'm going to be for <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, he's, he's really caught on a dilemma, Joe Biden is, because he's promised to pick a woman. And now, you know, uh, as a result of this latest gaffe saying uh, if you, you ain't black, he's uh, he's being pressured to pick a black woman which uh, kind of leaves a uh, limited um, uh, limited selection. First of all, uh, I know Joe Biden somewhat. I've, you know, I've uh, sat at a dinner table with him. I've been at uh, cocktail parties with uh, Joe Biden when I was uh, head 
of the uh, Firefighters Association in Georgia. Um, I can just tell by his body language that he's got a, a low Negro tolerance. He is not going to pick Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris. If he does, I think it'd be great because both of those women are uh, deeply unattractive candidates. But uh, he's he's going to go with a safe pick like Amy Klobuchar. I think the governor of Michigan, uh, Governor Gretchen, has uh, has ruined any chance she had by uh, by you know getting so unhinged in her her lockdowns. And uh, while we're talking about lockdowns, uh, Governor Como, who you know they're still saying is uh, is a, a good possible replacement for Joe Biden, despite the fact that his state had the worst record on preparedness and response to the coronavirus said something that caught my ear yesterday i'm out of that business because we all failed at that business right all the early national experts uh here's my projection model here's my projection model they were all wrong they were all wrong they were all wrong yes they were all wrong except for with one thing it was uh it was said early on and uh, has proven to be correct that the real vulnerable population, the most vulnerable population, is in nursing homes and in state after blue state, starting with Como, they have made a point to spend uh, to send Wuhan virus infected people into these nursing homes, and it's been disastrous in New York. Andrew Como is uh, responsible for probably about five thousand nursing home patients. While, while the uh, Javits Center, the field hospital, and the uh, hospital ship Mercy were sitting empty, Andrew Como had an executive order sending infected patients into nursing homes with a disastrous effect. Now he's trying to, to turn it around and, and figure out how to blame Trump for that. That's not going to work. But uh, all of this, the, as I said early on, uh, the cure has been worse than the disease. And here is a, here is a talker on uh, CNN agreeing. We've made multi-trillion, trillion dollar decisions based on very faulty science over the last six or eight weeks. Incredibly bad science that's been applied here. But, but this, this uh, lockdown of our economy has done very substantial damage to uh, Americans, millions of Americans, who tens of millions have lost their jobs, millions have lost their businesses. They keep saying, follow the science. You have to follow the science, and yet the science keeps changing. One day the CD says, CD says you know, you can get uh, coronavirus from touching something on a surface. The next day they say it isn't. One day they say you should wear a mask. The next day, maybe not. It's, it's, it's effective. Now they say it probably is. People are getting very confused here, Mike, and I do think the medical community has some answering to do about why they didn't get this more right in the first place. Well, I can tell you one of the reasons they didn't get it more right is because anybody who disagreed was immediately beat down in the media and taken down off of Social media, uh, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook were actually censoring opposing points of view that turned out to be right. I don't. I think they still have not reposted those uh, those posts from doctors who uh, who said that the lockdowns were a bad idea and would in fact cause more damage, including more infections. You know, in the old days, when you had a uh, an epidemic in a, a town, first thing they did is set up a hospital outside. Because they knew that uh, locking up people indoors was a uh, a terrible way to go. 
I got one more clip in this half hour. I'm not sure I'm going to have time. Let's try to get this in real quick. This is S.E. Cup over at CNN diagnosed. She's putting on her psychologist hat and diagnosing the president. I think what we're seeing is the president losing it. Uh, I don't think that the president's behavior is that of a healthy, stable, balanced person. This is not how a healthy, controlled person would behave at all, let alone during a pandemic and on a weekend meant to honor the memories. Well, I see Sarah Elizabeth is there talking about, uh, you know, uh, Trump hitting back at Joe Biden. Um, it's interesting coming from anybody on CNN questioning someone's mental health. Hey, when we come back in the second half hour, I'm going to play you a, uh, uh, an entire episode from the Corbett report talking about who Bill Gates is and what's the real agenda behind this, uh, this drive to vaccinate people and require them to have a certificate that they've been vaccinated in order to work or go about their lives. That's going to be the whole second half of the show without commercial interruption. You want to stick with us for that. Right here on Right Now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo 5 Radio Network. We'll be right back. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Whether you have your own bathroom or you share one with your family, a little extra help keeping the bathroom sink, counter, and mirror clean goes a long way. And Viva paper towels are for the long haul. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. And they clean like cloth, helping you keep the surfaces in your bathroom dry and fingerprint and toothpaste free. For an exceptional bathroom clean, there's Viva paper towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo Five O Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. So I'm going to do something kind of unusual in this second half hour. I'm going to play for you in its entirety, or as much of it as we can, uh, one of a four-part series put together by James Corbett over at the Corbett Report. He's an interesting character, and he's put together a masterful four-part series uh, looking at Bill Gates' plan to vaccinate the world, what's behind it, the risks associated with it, and the uh, the motivations, the true motivations of Bill Gates and as, as it relates to this current Wuhan virus crisis. So uh, go to CorbettReport.com and listen to all of these and here is uh, a sample of what you will hear. I feel that the idea of the selfless billionaire do-gooder is a work of fiction so unbelievable it is only fit for Saturday morning cartoon fare. As we have seen in our first two explorations of Bill Gates' role as global health kingpin, 
The seemingly selfless generosity of the Gates family through their eponymous foundation has in fact greatly increased their own wealth, with Bill Gates' personal net worth having doubled in the past decade alone. But the takeover of public health that we have documented in How Bill Gates Monopolized Global Health and the remarkably brazen push to vaccinate everyone on the planet that we have documented in Bill Gates' plan to vaccinate the world was not, at base, about money. The unimaginable wealth that Gates has accrued is now being used to purchase something much more useful. Control. Control not just of the global health bodies that can coordinate a worldwide vaccination program or the governments that will mandate such an unprecedented campaign, but control over the global population itself. This is an exploration of Bill Gates and the population control grid. You're tuned into the Corbett Report. From a journalistic standpoint, Good Morning America's inane report on the secretive billionaire meeting that took place in New York in 2009 was a failure. It listed some of the meeting's attendees and their combined net worth. Gates, Buffett, Bloomberg, Winfrey, together with others at the meeting, including George Soros, Ted Turner, David Rockefeller, they're worth more than $125 billion. It turned to the senior editor of Forbes for a soundbite about what it would be like to witness such an assembly of wealth. To have been in the room and, and see this meeting of the minds really would have been a fascinating thing. And it dutifully reported the participants' own stated reason for holding the meeting. That much money, that much power around one table, it begs the question, what were they doing? What were they scheming? Total world domination? This group, together for six hours, was talking about charity, education, emergency relief, global health. Before wrapping up with another juvenile appeal to comic book superhero lore. The new Superman and Wonder Woman. The super rich friends. Not fighting bad guys, but fighting for good nonetheless. For Good Morning America, John Berman, ABC News. Yes, from a journalistic standpoint, Berman's report was an utter failure. There was no attempt to question the participants about the meeting. No space for any criticism of these billionaires or questions about their motives. No adversarial journalism of any kind. But as a PR piece, it was brilliant. It leaves the viewer with a vague sense that some kind of gathering took place somewhere in New York in which rich people, who, let's not forget, are superheroes, talked about charity. One would have to turn to print sources to discover that the meeting was held at the personal residence of Sir Paul Nurse, then president of Rockefeller University, that the invitation to the gathering was co-written by Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, and David Rockefeller, or that the aim of the meeting was to consider how their wealth could be used to slow the growth of the world's population. Given that these extraordinarily rich and powerful men, including Warren Buffett, David Rockefeller, and Ted Turner, have all expressed their belief that the growing human population is the greatest threat faced by humanity, it should not be surprising that they would convene a conference to discuss how best to channel their vast wealth into the project of reducing the number of people on the planet. Particularly unsurprising is that attendees of the meeting later dubbed Bill Gates, a man for whom population control is particularly close to his heart, as the most impressive speaker at the event. Here we can see a chart that looks at the total 
world population over the last several hundred years. And at first glance, this is a bit scary. We go from less than a billion in 1800, and then three, four, five, six, and 7.4 billion where we are today is happening even faster. So Melinda and I wondered whether providing new medicines and keeping children alive, would that create more of a population problem? And what the developing world does not need is more children. Hmm. And I think that was the biggest aha to Bill and me when we got into this work, as we asked ourselves, of course, the same hard-nosed question you'd ask, which is, if you get into this work and you start to save these children, will women just keep overpopulating the world? And thank goodness the converse is absolutely true. This is a very important question to get right because it was, it was absolutely key for me. When our foundation first started up, it was focused on reproductive health. That was the main thing we did because I thought, you know, population growth in poor countries is the biggest problem they face. You've got to help mothers who want to limit family size have the tools and education to do that. And I thought that's the only thing that really counts. In recent years, Critics have pointed to Bill Gates' own words linking vaccination programs with his goal of reducing population growth. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, health care, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. $10 billion over the next 10 years uh, to make it the year of the vaccines. What does that mean exactly? Well, over this decade... Uh, we believe unbelievable progress can be made, both inventing new vaccines and making sure they get out to all the children who need them. Uh, we could cut the number of children who die every year from about 9 million to half of that uh, if we have success on it. And the, the benefits there in terms of reducing sickness, reducing the population growth, it really allows a society a chance to take care of itself uh, once you've made that intervention. But as any number of fact-checking websites not to mention Bill Gates himself, are quick to point out, this doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. What we found out is that as health improves, families choose to have less children. The truth is that when people's lives improve, when children survive, for instance, or when girls go to school, people start making decisions based on the expectation that their children will live and thrive. The result is smaller families and slower population growth. I came across articles that showed that the key thing you can do to reduce population growth is actually improve health. And that sounds paradoxical. You think, okay, better health means more kids, not less kids. Well, in fact, what parents are doing is they're, op- they're trying to have two kids survive to adulthood to take care of them. And so the more disease burden there is, the more kids they have to have to have that high probability. So there's a perfect correlation that as you improve health, within a half generation, the population growth rate goes down. Yes, the Gates' stated plan is to reduce population growth by improving health. But the idea of using vaccines as sterilization agents, even without the public's knowledge or consent, is not conspiracy lore, but documentable fact. In its 1968 annual report, the Rockefeller Foundation addressed the problems of population, lamenting that very little work is in progress on immunological methods, such as vaccines, to reduce fertility. 
and much more research is required if a solution is to be found here. The Foundation vowed to correct this problem by funding established and beginning investigators to turn their attention to aspects of research in reproductive biology that have implications for human fertility and its control. This was no empty promise. By the time of its 1988 annual report, the Rockefeller Foundation was able to report progress on its funding into contraceptive research, including Norplant, a contraceptive implanted under the skin of a woman's upper arm and effective for five years. In its 1988 report, the Rockefeller Foundation was pleased to announce that Norplant, which was developed by the Rockefeller-founded Population Council, was now approved for marketing in 12 countries. The Rockefeller's Population Council and other research organizations joined with the World Health Organization in 1972 to create a task force on vaccines for fertility regulation. By 1995, they were able to report progress in developing a prototype of an anti-HCG vaccine, which works by combining an immunogen formed from a synthetic peptide of human chorionic gonadotrophin, HCG, a hormone secreted by the surface of the early embryo to remain implanted in the womb, with a toxoid carrier molecule. The vaccine stimulates an immune reaction, causing women to develop antibodies against the hormone, thus preventing them from carrying babies to term. But beginning in the 1990s, a series of scandals over WHO-led vaccination programs in the Third World led to allegations that tetanus vaccines in places like the Philippines and Kenya were being laced with HCG in order to implement population control by stealth. The controversy generated by these stories led global institutions to step back from the campaign to champion population control by vaccine. But, as usual, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was there to renew interest, working with the UK government to host a London summit on family planning in 2012, at which the foundation announced their support for funding the research, development, and deployment of injectable contraceptives to the developing world. You heard me talk earlier about Sadie, who I met in Niger. She was traveling 15 kilometers to get an injection. But let's ask ourselves, what if she didn't have to travel to that clinic? If we put it in her perspective, how can we keep her in her village to get the contraceptive she wants? Well, Pfizer is testing a new form of depot. The injection that she goes 15 kilometers to get They're now putting it in a new form, a new device that can be given. It's very, very small. It's called Uniject. I think it's going to be pictured here. It's a high-quality product. It's effective. It's safe. It's tiny, as you can see. And it can be put in a healthcare worker's kit to give to the woman at the village level. So Sadie won't have to go 15 kilometers any longer to get that injection. But the gates were not content to stop there. In 2014, it was announced that Microchips Biotech Inc., a company in Lexington, Massachusetts, had developed a new form of birth control, a wireless implant that can be turned on and off with a remote control and that is designed to last up to 16 years. According to MIT Technology Review, the idea originated when Bill Gates visited Robert Langer's MIT lab in 2012 and asked him if it would be possible to create an implantable birth control device that could be turned on or off remotely. Langer referred Gates to the controlled-release microchip technology he had invented and licensed to Microchips Biotechnology, and the Gates Foundation granted $20 million to the firm to develop the implants. Reducing population growth has, by Gates' own admission, been a core mission of the Gates Foundation since its inception. 
But in order to really understand what Gates means by population control, we have to look beyond the concept of controlling population size. At its most fundamental level, the population control that Gates speaks of is not birth control, but control of the population itself. In order to understand the broader population control agenda and how it ties into the Gates Foundation's plans, we have to look at a puzzling development that took place in 2017. In that year, Gavi, the Gates-founded and funded alliance that partners the Gates Foundation, the World Health Organization, and the World Bank with vaccine manufacturers to help ensure healthy markets for vaccines, took a strange pivot away from its core mission of vaccinating every child on the planet to providing every child with a digital biometric identity. The idea was first floated by Gavi CEO Seth Berkeley in a Nature article that year, Immunization Needs a Technology Boost, where he states that the goal of 100% immunization will not be reached without secure digital identification systems that can store a child's medical history. He then gives a specific example. We are working with a company in India called Kushi Baby, which creates off-grid digital health records. A necklace worn by infants contains a unique identification number on a short-range communication chip. Community health workers can scan the chip using a mobile phone, enabling them to update a child's digital record even in remote areas with little phone coverage. This sudden interest in digital identity was no mere passing fancy for the Vaccine Alliance. Gavi doubled down by becoming a founding member of the ID2020 Alliance, a public-private partnership dedicated to spearheading a global digital biometric identity standard. Other founding members of the alliance include Gates' first company, Microsoft, and the Rockefeller Foundation. In 2018, Gavi issued a call for innovation in digital technologies for finding, identifying, and registering the most vulnerable children. The call specifically requested technologies for capturing, storing, and enrolling the biometric details of infants on rugged biometric devices. Berkeley continued to follow up on this idea in public engagements as one of the new core missions of Gavi. What's interesting is that people tend to think of, you know, birth certificates as kind of a major document. But, you know, the most common, as, as I mentioned before, is not a birth certificate, is not a death certificate, is not a marriage certificate. The most common connection, vital registration for the population is actually a child health card because we reach more than 90 percent of children with at least one dose of vaccine as part of routine. So they're in the system. The challenge is that contact is not connected into the system. So if you could connect it, then you have the ability to give them their basic identity papers. You have ability then later on if they want to own land or they want to have their rights, you're able to help them with that. But, you know, we're not currently taking advantage of that. And so the children get seen, they get enrolled in the health centers, but that information is not used for anything else. Although vaccines and identity may seem unrelated, Bill Gates has spent the last few years funding research that can bring the two ideas together. Late last year, Gates once again turned to Robert Langer and his MIT colleagues to investigate new ways to permanently store and record the vaccination information of each individual. The result of their research was a new vaccine delivery method. They found that by using dissolvable microneedles that deliver patterns of near-infrared light-emitting microparticles to the skin, they could create particle patterns in the skin of vaccine recipients which are invisible to the eye but can be imaged using modified smartphones. Rice University describes the quantum dot tags left behind by the microneedles as something like a barcode tattoo. 
So who was behind this development? As lead researcher Kevin McHugh explains, The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came to us and said, Hey, we have a real problem, knowing who's vaccinated. So our idea was to put the record on the person. This way, later on, people can scan over the area to see what vaccines have been administered and give only the ones still needed. The microparticles that form the fluorescent quantum dot tags are delivered along with the vaccine, but they cannot be delivered by a traditional syringe. Instead, they must be delivered by a patch of microneedles made from a mixture of dissolvable sugar and a polymer called PVA, as well as the quantum dot dye in the vaccine. It should be no surprise, then, that big pharma vaccine manufacturers, in their scramble to produce the coronavirus vaccine that, case assures us, is necessary to go back to normal, have turned to a novel vaccine delivery method, a dissolvable microneedle array patch. The University of Pittsburgh is where the polio vaccine was first discovered. At the medical center, researchers are now developing a vaccine that is delivered using a dissolvable patch called a microneedle array. Think about them as almost like a Band-Aid. And so the microneedle array is simply applied to the skin topically, pressed into place very shortly, and then taken off and thrown away. And then the antigen is already delivered. As is becoming evident... This new vaccine-delivered barcode-like tattoo is about much more than simply ensuring that children get all their Gavi-recommended immunizations. On a recent Ask Me Anything thread on Reddit, when asked, what changes are we going to have to make to how businesses operate to maintain our economy while providing social distancing? Bill Gates answered, eventually we will have some digital certificates to show who has recovered or been tested recently, or when we have a vaccine, who has received it. In his answer, Gates fails to mention that he has himself been instrumental in kickstarting and funding the research into the very type of digital certificates for vaccination that he is speaking about, or that these digital certificates, likely, at first, to be a digital marker linked to a biometric ID, could very well one day take the form of vaccine-implanted quantum dot tattoos. But, as in so many other aspects of the unfolding crisis, Gates' unscientific pronouncement that we will need digital certificates to prove our immunity in the new normal of the post-coronavirus world. Eventually, what we'll have to have is certificates of who's a recovered person, who's a vaccinated person. Is now being implemented by a number of governments. It is now being reported that OnFido, a tech startup specializing in AI-based biometric ID verification, is in talks with the British government to provide the type of digital certification Gates mentioned dubbed an immunity passport. The proposed system would require would-be workers to use the OnFido-provided app to scan their face or other biometric data, link that information to a SARS-CoV-2 antibody test, or, eventually, proof of coronavirus vaccination, and then have their picture taken and immunity verified every time they wish to access a restricted space or work environment. Last month, OnFido announced that it had raised $50 million in a round of investments led by Bill Gates' old company, Microsoft. But this is not Gates' first experience with the field of biometric identity. A decade ago, the government of India began what has been called the largest social experiment on Earth, enrolling over 1 billion people in the largest biometric identification database ever constructed. The project involving iris scanning and fingerprinting the entirety of the Indian population, recording their biometric details in a centralized database, 
and issuing them a 12-digit identity number that could be used to prove residents and access government services, all within the span of a few years, presented an incredible societal, legal, and technological challenge. It's no surprise, then, that the person who was brought in as the chief architect of the Adhar project when it was launched, Nandan Nilakani, co-founder of Indian multinational Infosys, is also a longtime friend of Bill Gates and a partner with Bill and Melinda Gates on a philanthropic venture called CoImpact, which supports initiatives to address major social challenges at scale. Nilakani's involvement in Adhar has even made him one of Gates's heroes, featured in slick video promotions produced by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. My friend, Nandan Nilakani, is one of India's best-known entrepreneurs. He led the creation of the world's largest biometric ID system. Now, he's working to promote his platform to improve the lives of the world's poorest people. There are more than a billion people around the world who don't have any kind of ID. You can't do anything in life without an ID because people are mobile, they're migrants, and wherever they go, whether they want a job or whether they want to board a train or whether they want to get a bank account or get a mobile connection, if the person has no way of proving who they are, then they just won't get access to those services. So the challenge we had was, how do we give a billion people, many of whom don't have birth certificates, how do we give them an ID? And Gates has personally praised the Adhar scheme as a huge asset for India. Well, Adhar is a huge asset for India. Uh, it was designed very well. The fact that uh, you can make digital payments so easily, you can open a bank account. Yeah. Uh, India is a leader in that. Our foundation, you know, worked with the Reserve Bank. Uh, you know, Nanda Neil and Connie and uh, a group of people that he pulled together did a great job. But Gates is not merely an arm's length admirer of the Adhar experiment. He is not only personally connected to its chief architect, he is also connected to one of the key companies that spearheaded the technology that underlies the project's biometric database. The company that provides the iris recognition technology at the core of the Adhar system, Idemia, also provides facial recognition systems for the Chinese government and is currently developing digital driver's licenses for use in the United States. Idemia even created the cushy baby identification necklaces with embedded microchips that Gavi CEO Seth Berkeley touted in his Nature article. Unsurprisingly, the company receives support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation through its involvement in the GSMA Inclusive Tech Lab. And now, Gates is funding a scheme to retool Adhar for a global rollout. In 2014, the World Bank created a multi-sector working group to launch the Identification for Development Initiative, or ID4D, which aims to support progress toward identification systems using 21st century solutions. The World Bank cites Goal 16.9 of the UN Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, vowing to provide legal identity for all, including birth registration, in the next 10 years as the basis for its initiative. But ID4D was little more than a pipe dream until 2016, when the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided catalytic contributions to launch the ID4D Multi-Donor Trust Fund, which enticed the UK, French, and Australian governments, along with the Omidyar Network, into a partnership aiming to shape global approaches and a shared vision on identification. Unsurprisingly, this World Bank ID4D initiative includes Nandar Nilakani, Gates's partner and the chief architect of Adhar, on its advisory council, and Gates has said that he is funding the World Bank to take this Adhar approach to other countries. 
This headlong rush to capture the biometric details and assign digital identification to every person on Earth is sold to the public under the guise of financial inclusion. The poorest people on the planet have trouble accessing financial services and receiving government aid because they don't have official government identification papers. In this formulation, being issued a government ID, having one's biometric details registered, tracked, and databased by the government, is a human right that must be secured. It should be no surprise by this point that this human right also has direct benefits for big business and for the entities that are looking to exert greater control over the human population. Gates provided insight into the real purpose of this identification control grid in a speech at the Financial Inclusion Forum hosted by the U.S. Treasury in 2015. Every country really needs to look through these uh, KYC Know Your Customer rules uh, to make sure that uh, customers are able to prove who they are. But, of course, in many countries, you don't have any type of ID system. And the lack of an ID system is a problem, not just for the payment system, but also for voting and health and education and taxation. And so it's a wonderful thing to go in and create a broad identification system. Again, India is a very uh, interesting example of this, where the Aadhaar system, which is a 12-digit identifier that's correlated to biometric measures, uh, is becoming pervasive throughout the country and will be the foundation uh, for how we bring this uh, low-cost switch to every mobile phone user in India. Uh, the same type of So what Gates is trying to do is uh, develop an identification system for everybody. It's going to be a combination of bio um, measurements and implanted chips so that uh, people can be tracked, and uh, and have their rights turned on and off. And what he's trying to do when you see him on TV talking about everybody in the world is going to have to be vaccinated is to piggyback uh, this effort to vaccinate everybody with this identification system. And the potential for abuse of this are, are mind-boggling. Of course, uh, it will lead to uh, the, the type of systems we see in communist China now with their their social uh, credit score um, so that they'll be able to track your movements. They'll be able to turn on and off uh, remotely your ability to uh, carry on commerce, to vote, to buy property, um, any number of things. The potential for abuse are really unlimited. And uh, this episode in this four-part series deals directly with this population control grid, but it's all combined with Bill Gates' efforts to vaccinate the world. So, again, I would recommend to you to go to CorbettReport.com and listen to this whole thing if you want to understand just exactly what is behind this globalist response to this Wuhan virus. If you want to know why they want to keep it locked down, if you want to know why they want to portray it as worse than any pandemic in human history, you will learn that from from this four-part series. Well, that takes us to the end of this edition of Right Now. Thank you for joining us. Hope you'll come back here again tomorrow. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is... Hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. 
Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details.